The Edifice Complex podcast is brought to you by DCM, the drawing specialists, Blue Rhythm Commissioning Software, and Sensor Suite, the future of intelligent buildings. Welcome to the Edifice Complex, the property design and development podcast. Let your hosts, Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean, keep you up with who is innovating and doing great work, perspective on the adjacent possible, and challenges to the status quo. Welcome to the Edifice Complex. I'm Robert Bean, your co-host and unofficial mediator here again with my colleague and official agitator is Yoda, Adam Muggleton. Say hello, sir, Yoda. Hello, I am baby Yoda. Always remember, I'm the baby one, right? <laughs> Today's special episode is a panel discussion designed really to peel back the layers affecting the ethics of design professionals who are by legislation obligated to protect the health and safety of the people who occupy the buildings that we design in a uh, pandemic that means concerning ourselves with the health and safety of the people that are occupying these buildings. And then, of course, right now we're talking about there's a worldwide pandemic that has led to the date of this interview to over 160 million cases worldwide, contributing to over 3 million deaths. So we, as design professionals, cannot ignore that. We are obligated to be part of the solution here. And as most of us know, it's not been an easy challenge, that's for sure. Three of our four hand-selected distinguished guests are alumni to the show. From episode number 49, we have Dr. Hema Murdy, who brings to the table a background in engineering diversity with her base in aerospace and computational studies. And I could listen to Hema talk all day long. (laughs) There was ever anybody that started with an academic study and decided that her PhD wasn't enough and decided that any opportunity for learning, she's just a real motivation for just ongoing studies. So it's great to have you back, Hema. Out of anybody that we know, you understand predictable airflow and unpredictable airflow like no other. And so we're really privileged to have you on. Thank you very much. From episode number 20 is Dr. Bill Boncliffe. William, you're a professor of architectural engineering at Penn State University. I don't know when the first time we met you was probably in a bar somewhere at some conference. (laughs) You are uh, holding a position which has not been easy for you as chair of the ASHRAE COVID task force. You've really been on the front lines Mm -hmm. uh, developing position statements and engineering guidelines for our over 55,000 members worldwide and a representative voice in the Indoor Environmental Quality General Alliance, which represents engineers and architects and building science from all over the world. I don't know how many members that actually equates to, but I'm guessing probably over 250,000, 275,000 engineers, architects, building scientists. I'm guessing maybe you can answer oh, that later. have to be since they're organizational members and you've got ASHRAE, REVA, ISHRAE. It's, it's a big group. Yeah. We're not talking about a trivial amount of people here that understand these concepts. From episode 17, and one of the most interesting ones that we've had in terms of ethics on the show, Dr. Roland Clift, who helped develop the discipline of industrial ecology. During our interview, he shared wisdom around the ethics of engineering sustainability in the built environments, leaving a message with our audience that following orders or doing whatever everyone else was doing is not a legal defense. 
I think that's really important, not only for us as engineers and architects, but for epidemiologists, biologists, public health officials, anybody that's out there influencing policy. We can't do things just because somebody else is doing or that it's been. And the case the last two weeks, we've discovered that there's been errors leading to some really bad information. So new to the show is Dr. Shelly Miller, and she's a professor of mechanical engineering at the University of Colorado. Shelly, I think we met at a conference on healthy buildings or something in Colorado probably a decade ago, I guess it was. Your research projects, I mean, there's many, I mean, you could spend a lot of time reading your your bio and resume, but it has to do with reducing exposure to infectious diseases. And I think you've contributed a lot from the very beginning in terms of this subject matter today. And you've been a reliable voice, certainly in the collaborative of interdisciplinary teams. And it's great to have you on as well. So thanks all. We appreciate your participation. We certainly encourage our listeners to dig a little bit deeper into the skills of our accomplished guests, because like I said, this short, brief introduction doesn't do justice. We've identified four subjects that we'd like to discuss with our guests, and we'll let the dialogue evolve over 10 to 15 minutes. Adam, that's your job. Keep us on track, if you will. I'm going to rotate responses, and we're going to start with the first question with Dr. Miller, and then we'll let everybody else follow up afterwards. So, Shelley, first question for you, what lessons can we learn from the pandemic in relationship to the current and future building stock? Where do I even begin? I think what I'd like to start with as a, as a framing as an environmental engineer, that I solve environmental problems with engineering solutions, and I focus on urban air pollution. And we start with the source of the pollution. So right in this pandemic, we realized early on that it was a respiratory aerosol being released by infectious persons. And when we raised the alarm about this, the paradigm of infectious disease transmission was could not accept this idea that it was an airborne disease. And it took over a year for the WHO to finally accept it. So I think one thing we really need to learn is to collaborate and open our minds to new science and new paradigms that are going to be very important for solving the wicked problems that are coming our way and not to be closed-minded and think that, oh, it's always been done this way. And, and so this is a ridiculous idea. And that's a pretty big idea. The other idea comes to air pollution. So air pollution is regulated outside, but not inside. And I've always thought that was crazy because, oh, it's a public thing. It's it's your air and your house, and I'm not going to touch your air in your house. Well, nobody actually understands the air quality in their house because they don't have any idea what the sources of the contaminants are and what to do about it. And so I'm really hoping that this pandemic has open people's eyes to realizing that the air quality in their home, in their buildings is important for their health and it's shared air that actually needs some attention and needs to be addressed in building codes, guidelines, standards. And we need the cutting edge next generation engineering techniques to be able to provide clean, healthy air in an energy efficient manner. And so those things, I hope, are what we take out of this pandemic. Thanks for that, uh, Shelley. Hema, you're going to get the follow up on that. What's your comments on that? What lessons can we learn from a pandemic in relationship to current and future building stock? Yeah, well, I'm impressed with the level of, you know, just being part of the uh, technical community. I'm impressed with how all the experts in this area, anything related to this area, have come together in terms of providing information. So I think what lessons can we learn? I think in any kind of a problem-solving modality, you go to the people who 
are able to solve the problem. In most cases, it's not the politicians unless it's a political problem. So I think what lessons can we learn? I think the public has been, the switch has been turned on. Who do you go to find an answer? If nothing else, they should understand the role of technical people and each individual in that technical world, their role in, in problem solving. And I think math and numbers clearly in the news every day. So if nothing else, I think they've been alerted to the role of technology and going forward, I think at least some of the population will turn on, you know, we used to say turn on your thinking hat or something like that, put on your thinking hat. I think some of them have been turned on to that modality of understanding the world around them through the correct sources of information, if nothing else. Those are really good comments. Shelly, you made a, you know the point that your voice representing hundreds or literally thousands of other voices within the engineering community, those sciences, was ignored. Hima, your response in terms of those people that can solve the problem should maybe be consulted <laughs> rather than be ignored or kept outside of the decision-making process. So, Bill. Always interested in hearing your words. What do you think? What have we learned here? Well, what have we learned about the building stock? We've learned that it, it doesn't work very well in the pandemic. I think the first thing that we've learned is what we've considered an acceptable standard for indoor air quality isn't acceptable and it hasn't really protected us against airborne transmission. So that's been a big problem. And I think another is that buildings are not resilient. It's not very easy to go from where we are to where we need to be to protect people inside without spending a lot of money and without using a lot of energy. And I think we've also learned that from the point of view of energy, pandemic aside, that our buildings really aren't nearly as good at controlling energy use as we thought. For example, I, I talked to a real estate board of New York and they were telling me that they had office buildings in Manhattan with 10% occupancy that were using basically the same amount of energy as when they were fully occupied. So, you know, that kind of revealed a whole different area that we need to get into. And if, if I step aside from the original question of the what have we learned about the building stock, what we've learned about the people who are responsible for it is that we've got some really bad siloing and, and lack of communication between government and medical professionals and building scientists and in the public. So those are all things that we learned that uh, we probably would have rather not learned in the last year and a half. Well, all of us have been touched over our careers with energy policy. You think about a building, whether it's fully occupied or 10% occupied and it's using the same amount of energy, that's not good. If our buildings can't respond as we would expect them, you're bringing up the topic about resilience. That's been a buzzword now for the last five or six years. But when I think about the buildings that Adam and I have been involved in, in terms of designing systems, resilience really didn't hit our drafting tables really to the last couple of years, right? So mm. Roland, always again, yeah. interested in hearing your wise words. Well, I don't know that we've learned it yet. And I hope we are going to learn it and not forget it. It seems to me that what the pandemic has exposed is the importance of a whole lot of problems that were already there and are closely related. That's been mentioned. You know, indoor air quality was already an issue. It happens that the work I know best has been done at the University of Michigan, just because I know the people doing it. And um, the importance of indoor air quality for health, we know about it, but the general public doesn't. So let's pull all that together, make this try and make this as a coherent opportunity. And as you say, energy efficiency. Why do you need to ventilate the whole building? Why do you need to heat the whole building? You know, we need much more 
more distributed environmental control systems, it seems to me. And that one is going to be particularly important because I think we are going to go back to behaving like we did in the past. The size of building that an organization needed, I'm thinking now of organizational of buildings rather than private buildings, the amount of space that a company is going to need is going to be much reduced because people have got used to working from home. We're used to work using Zoom like we are now. And I don't think that's going to go away. So pull those lot together. We really are in a new paradigm. And I hope people are going to grab it and not just say, oh, the pandemic's gone. We can go back to normal. Well, we shouldn't. Great response. One of uh, our clients was, we had a discussion on Tuesday and their entire organization, there's over 5,000 employees in that organization. That's quite possible that maybe only 30% of them will end up back in an office space. That's a significant change. Yeah. Means things like flexi space are going to have to be taken. You know, our companies I know that have tried it didn't try it for very long because people hated it. But the world's different now. So the idea that you've got your own office is probably dead. Yeah. <laughs> Could be. <laughs> very good. Well, thank you very much for your responses to that question. Hema, I'm going to give the next question to you. Hema comes from the aerospace industry and ended up as one of my students. Ended up asking the best questions ever. I mean, as we discovered in our first interview with her, the whole concept of multidisciplinary teams, it was a wonderful discussion that we had. So Hema, how effective has the multidisciplinary analysis and problem solving been in our response to the pandemic? I think going forward, this is going to be a more common question. You know, I think you guys thought this up, you know, based on the fact that we now have data supporting the fact that it must be multidisciplinary. Like this is a global problem and it's been solved by, as I said before, you know, through a whole bunch of technical people weighing in a very, you know, high in in knowledge and space. And there's respective problem solving skills, you know, throwing at the problem, their ability to solve it in their strengths. And then saying, okay, we got to put this all together to formulate a solution to this because we found out that the table for the people who are solving the problem has to not only be the people who are into the medical field, but also clearly the engineering field. I mean, that was from the get-go, the obvious answer to that. But on top of that, as time moved on, and not very much time, maybe if March was this aha moment where, oh no, kind of thing happened. And then people were deciding, you know, who are the stakeholders and all of this who have to make the decision. Then we found it was basically everyone, like teachers, education system, politicians, because now they're making rapid decisions on things that are affecting people at the very very basic living condition level. And so I think all to say is that very early we found out from this specific problem that multidisciplinary analysis and problem solving has to be quintessential going forward. It's almost like it always was, but people were reluctant to acknowledge that. Why? Because look at what's been happening. I mean, just look around. Has it been easy to put together that group of people to get a solution? No. And maybe that's one of the problems of why it's lagged so long. And I think here in the technical community, all of us, you know, sing the same song. So it's kind of unfair to say it. But if all of the important people who could put a kibosh on the problem solving really quickly had been put together early to feed into the decision making pipeline quicker, we all know, I mean, here we're all, as I said, you know, 
know, bias because we're on this correct line of thinking to, to problem solve. We have problem solving built into our genetics almost, like we grew up problem solving. So I think that unfortunately is the issue here because those that are making the decisions are not used to making those type of decisions. They're more used to thinking in a different way. So yes, multidisciplinary meaning the politicians, the educational field, the engineers, the medical community. And when I say this, these are huge domains of specialties. If you say medical communities, you know, different types of medical expertise. If you say engineering, of course, we all know different types of engineers have different, really strong skills. I mean, each person has a different skill set that could solve a problem at that level. So multidisciplinary is almost like an oxymoron because if it's not, how do you solve the problem? I mean, going to just think of this myopic little thing. I mean, that's like describing an elephant with blind person and saying, okay, it's, it's a trunk. No, it's not because you have another person feeling it the other way. So you really need to have a less myopic scheme of things. And I think that's equivalent to saying multidisciplinary. There's something in a Ontario called a science table which provides solutions, feeds into the solutions at the Ontario government level. And at that table are a bunch of disciplines. I'm not sure how it all works in the sense of who makes decision making and who does analysis and all that stuff, the details of it. But I do know the concept is interesting. But I did recently, just out of curiosity, see what skill sets were on it. They were a little skewed. I, If I you know, had to comment, I would broaden it out a little more. I mean, there was no aerosol uh, specialist on that or you know, someone of that nature who had knowledge of that kind of a dynamic, all said and done, maybe there was somebody there who was aware of those issues and was talking to someone or contracted out separately. But I think if you're representing a table saying this is the table that's going to solve the problem, should at least figuratively have people who, you know, who are solving different aspects of the problem and not just medical, not just number crunchers, you know, not data scientists, all necessary and all need to be welcomed. And I think a new skill is going to come out of this is a person who can tie people together. Because another mm-hmm. problem we've discovered in this, when you bring up multidisciplinary, the reason multidisciplinary efforts in general, I mean, I can say that because I've been through this since grad school, School, but and all of us at the table have, but you run into people being in their little frog in the well type of thing. I'm going to solve this. I'm going to solve this aerodynamic problem. And I'm going to sit over here, as Dr. Miller was saying, you know, you, as we've done it this way before. So we're just going to keep doing it. Well, right now I happen to know new stuff. So maybe your myopic vision isn't going to solve it anymore. So I think multidisciplinary is almost like a no brainer. It's almost like saying I've ignored these elements before and suddenly I'm aware of them and not because it didn't exist prior to this situation. Thank you for that. Appreciate it. Bill, what, uh, what about you? What's how effective has the multidisciplinary analysis and problem solving been in our response? Yeah, well, I would start by saying that multidisciplinary cooperation it depends on which disciplines you're talking about and also that it's layered. So at one level, we think in terms of multidisciplinary being, well, health sciences versus physical sciences versus building sciences. And I think physical and building science have worked very well together. A good example of that is this group of 36 that Lydia Moroska put together that Shelley and I belong to. That's been a tremendous group. We love it. And we've just had another publication in science that I think is very important that came out yesterday on paradigm shifts. So that's worked pretty well. 
across the the line to health, not not so much. And uh, they have their view of aerosol science from I don't know which century, but they didn't want to listen to to aerosol scientists about what we actually know about how particles behave. So that hasn't been so good. But on, on the other hand, I think we've seen some interesting things in the connection between say, science and practice and government, if you want to view those as disciplines of a different type. We've had really a good interaction, I think, between scientists and uh, practitioners within what the ASHRAE task force has been doing. And I could say also in the interactions that the, the task force has had with government. So it's a mixed bag. Some things really good, some things really bad. And this, the last thing I'd say is being the loyal opposition, even when people think you don't know what you're talking about, has been useful. If you go back to March and April of last year, who was saying there's airborne transmission and we need to do something about it? Reva and Ashray. And then we had to answer questions for months about why are you contradicting WHO and, and CDC? And it's because we think they're wrong and we think that there's enough risk here that we need to do something about it. So that's been an interesting aspect of all of this too. The reality is every one of us, when we were young kids, sat on a couch and watched dust particles in the sunlight, <laughs> have been to the ocean to see the sprays coming off the waves. I mean, it's great to have the academics and the research work that all of you have been involved in, but Mother Nature provides us the story if we just pay attention. And it seems like for whatever reason, the field of engineering was ignored, even though it was right there in our face right from the beginning. And we knew it when we were eight years old, you know. Roland, what do you have to contribute? You may not know, 30 years ago, I set up a research center with the explicit purpose of combining engineers and behavioral scientists. People said at the time I was crazy, but it was proved to be extremely rich and productive. And amongst the things I learned from it, it's perfectly possible for engineers and social scientists to work together very constructively. You really know you're doing well when you address questions that you can't even formulate within one discipline. <laughs> but the essential thing is the importance of empirical evidence. The people I found completely impossible to work with were the ones who come with a lot of theoretical baggage. So that's social theorists who are completely useless in my experience. And the ones who are the worst are the economists. And that said, with feeling over 30 years, the people I've found it hardest to work with constructively are economists. And I think part of the lesson that we ought to draw from this is that the people who are good at problem solving are not the people who are good at solving economic problems. They're a different bunch. And it needs the engineers to have a much more prominent role in policymaking, displacing some of the frankly nutcase economists that you get around the place. Can, can I ask if you include behavioral economists in that group? Because economists don't think they're economists. In some oh, no, I, I think behavioral economists are okay. <laughs> the ones I really have problems with are the neoclassicists. And my son-in-law, by the way, custard pied Milden Friedman. And I was very proud of him for doing that. <laughs> Well, you know, it's interesting, and I'm going to say a statement here that uh, I don't actually have all of the depth of it, but back in the early beginnings, two professors, I think from McGill University, both of them were lawyers and physicians, did an article in McLean's magazine outlining that every chief medical officer of health had the power to overturn any decision made by a politician or anybody that was in control of the political and economic systems. And every one of them advocated their authority, handing it back to political leadership. 
step in there, Robert, and disagree with you. I'm just telling you that's what the article on McLean's were saying. Yeah. That's the point. I've been very lucky to live in British Columbia. These handled the pandemic much better, I think, than any of the other provinces, except possibly the Maritimes. You can debate that. Yeah. The reason that is, that is we have a very effective chief medical officer, and it's been made quite clear from the start that her position is not political, and she tells the politicians what's going to happen. And As it should be. Because of yeah. her personal characteristics, people have bought into that. And yeah. Bonnie has been a saviour. Before I let Shelley chime in on this, so my question to you, Roland, has been, since we're talking about disciplinary teams, how effective has she been playing with other disciplines? Because I don't think she's done anything to refer to engineering sciences at all, has she? Uh, she may not have done that explicitly, but it's pretty clear behind the scenes that she has been. One of her big strengths, by the way, has been how to present complicated modeling results in a way which is accessible to a general public. In fact, I've been advocating to my students, not just in Canada, watch how she does it, because it's a real eye-opener as to how you can get complicated and quite subtle results across the general public in a way that they can understand, relate to, and therefore understand what you're doing. So one more sort of question that creates some tension in the dialogue that we're having between you and I here is that, has her communications mirrored that of the World Health Organization and Health Canada, or has it been in opposition to it? The words coming out of her mouth, do they represent more of the words that we talk in terms of aerosols, that social distancing is a myth and a fable? And I don't think I've ever heard her directly contradict the WHO or the federal position, but she's not contestational like that. A lot of what she said has been actually divergent from WHO position, although she hasn't emphasized that. Not being presented as, look, I disagree, these people have got it wrong. Uh, yeah. as, look, this is how it is, and this is how we're going to do it in BC. This is one of those things where when you bring up a particular individual within a certain area, that if we had another individual on who represented the opposite position of yours, we could probably have a whole dialogue and our discussion on it. So thanks for that, by the way, Roland. Shelley, your position in terms of multidisciplinary, how effective has it been? Well, that's one of my passions is having multidisciplinary teams on all my projects. And I am actually one of those people who can think of the disciplines and the kinds of people I need to bring together to get a project done. And so it's just the way I operate. Now, I don't get a lot of credit for it because people always wonder what your contribution was in the academic setting. But I find that it's very frustrating when you try to work across aisles and the other person is blowing you off. And I usually get that kind of reaction from the medical community. Although I do have a physician friend who has an MPH and is an expert on tuberculosis. And we've written a couple of papers together and he has great regard for engineers and always brings me in on, on every project that he does on respiratory aerosols and how to control them. So you have to find the right person and really just work across aisles. It's really, to me, the fun way to work. And so I think it's been incredible for us to have this interdisciplinary team advocating for airborne transmission because otherwise I'm not sure as many people would have been listening. If it had just been all the aerosol scientists, it would have been, oh, that's a bunch of crazies out there in engineering. But we had physicians, we had virologists, we had microbiologists, we had economists. And so people that were multidisciplinary advocating for the same thing. Just a quick one from me. Is the insertion of politics 
into the multidisciplinary working together. Is the insertion of politics the poison pill that makes it difficult? It seems like it has in this particular case because the big weights around our ankles were CDC and WHO, which are all, at least over the last year, operating very politically. It was unclear. They're not being very forthright about it, but that's why I think they have been slow to the table and been a big pain as far as I'm concerned. This is a great segue into the next question, which I'm going to give to Roland first, which has to do directly with ethics. So Roland, is it ethical to go back to business as usual in the built environment following the pandemic? Of course, we're here to talk mainly about buildings and property development, but this is a much bigger question, obviously. But what do you think? Do we go back to business? What's the forward Um, path here? I would say no, but it requires some pretty major overhaul of thinking, actually. Take Canadian example. Canadian federal government is being very woolly about whether it's going to go for vaccination passports in a way which I think is lamentable, actually. And I'm not really clear why they are being so soft on it. It seems to me it's part of the confusion about the word freedom. Now, freedom to and freedom from are different things. And people need to grab that. And the anti-vaxxers are really at one end of that. And they don't recognize my right to be free from people, idiots who will infect me, bluntly. That's why I think the vaccine passports would be a very important way forward in trying to establish what are new norms for public behavior and working practices. You know, if you don't want to get vaccinated, that's up to you. But don't come near me and don't go in the theater when I'm there. Would you see the passports being extended to building access? Yes, would be. Absolutely. Particularly where there are communal spaces. That's exactly what I was getting around to, Adam. I think that we really should be looking seriously at a future where that can be done without being misused. I mean, I understand the problems about misusing that kind of system. But even so, it seems to me perfectly reasonable that people who don't want to be infected by people who haven't been vaccinated should be allowed to stay away from them, keep them apart. So building access, I think, should depend on proof of having been vaccinated. It's an information issue, essentially, from your point of view, right? It's a big subject because... It has a lot to do with personal rights. And I think that the freedom not to be infected by someone else is every bit as important as the freedom not to be vaccinated if I don't want to be. If I may, it's a little bit like the smoking controversy for, for so many years ago where most of us didn't want to be exposed to secondhand smoke because it causes lung cancer and heart disease. But the smokers all wanted their right to smoke wherever they wanted. And it took quite a while for those of us who did not want to be exposed and wanted our indoor environments to remain toxic free, essentially won out. And I I do see that as a similar issue here. I think you're right, Shannon. It took decades for that one to get cleared. I would hope that in the wake of the pandemic, when people are more sensitized to it, it won't take decades. (laughs) You can have a lot of fun with this dialogue because according to Bill, you'll have buildings that are 10% empty. We could put all the anti-vaxxers and the deniers in those buildings. And then data will tell us who was right or wrong. (laughs) Yeah, and there's going to be a lot of Darwin Awards won, I'm sure. (laughs) What you're talking about is a database of registered people that have been vaccinated. And of course, that would get tied into some kind of proof of identity. We're talking about a huge issue there that's not going to be resolved in the few years coming up. 
Like you're talking about human rights issues that discussions that could easily last five years or more. I'm not sure it's it's a matter of how you present it, Bob, isn't it? I mean, you can't drive a car unless you can prove that you've got a driving license. Mm -hmm. People have got used to that one. You can't go into a public building unless you can prove that you've been vaccinated. It's the access to that database. In the case of the driver's license, it's law enforcement, right? Yeah. In the case of a building, who has that data? Shall I, I do want more fundamental than driving a car, though. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Shall I, did you want to add any more? You're, you're sort of up next. You kind of answered some of this stuff already. Do you want to add any more to your response to that? Or? No, I mean, I think also just the other point that you wanted to make how we all understand aerosol from seeing the spray in the ocean and seeing the dust particles. We also see aerosol every day by us cooking and by us driving our cars and by being around people who smoke. And so I think helping the public understand that and that aerosol is just a term for particles that are suspended in the air and that they are an important pollution source that we need to control, I think makes this whole respiratory disease thing less foreign. And that's one of the reasons I was so irritated with WHO and CDC by saying, well, we don't want to scare people by this airborne issue. Like you're going to let people die because you don't want to scare people. They're scared anyway. I mean, it was just to me nuts. And I'll just be frank about that. So, I mean, I think the biggest issue right now is people not using their exhaust hoods while they're cooking. And many buildings don't even have exhaust hoods, like apartment buildings. So I'm ready to move on to the next problem here because I'm vaccinated. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for that. The Edifice Complex will continue in just a moment. Can you find the drawing and supporting documents you need in less than a minute? Now you can with Echo. It's simple. Just type what you're looking for and press enter. Echo knows your building. Speak with a drawing specialist today. Ask about our special offer of painless onboarding plus six months free with Echo. Visit podcast.thedsoffer.com. That's podcast.thedsoffer.com. And now back to the show. Kima, in your world, unethical behavior by an aerospace engineer has significant consequences. Do we go back to business as usual? If you're representing the, not the voice of the aerospace industry, but ethics and engineering, do we go back to the past or what do we do going forward? I think this is a huge human problem. And I think Roland was talking about that. The human problem is actually more complicated than the engineering problem. And basically, because there's some logic associated with the engineering problem, with the human problem, it is a social problem. And there's all kinds of, as you pointed out, ramifications of making a decision and some can be fatal. So You know, I've been listening to this conversation and pointing out, you know, multidisciplinary and people pointing out that everything is multidisciplinary and that's the problem solving occurs. But I think what we're all trying to say is that the world was always a people problem. And suddenly it came to the point where we didn't solve the people problem a long time ago. People problem being how do you develop a personality? How do you teach the human population the personality traits you need to make the whole world as a collective be healthy and happy, not just every person for themselves attitude, but a piece of the huge puzzle. And this particular pandemic has made that blatantly clear to everyone that your survival depends on the guy who you've not even seen who could be on the other side of the planet who has nothing to do with you different economic circumstances different whatever whole totally different 
circumstances, and yet your survival tomorrow will depend on that. That kind of thinking hasn't been developed. So if you're going to go into the social aspect of ethics, then I think we are all guilty on the planet because I would say that everyone pays a part and we haven't, you know, this is 2021. Why have we not solved the problem where we develop a mindset on the 7 billion or so people on the planet that are more advanced in terms of thinking beyond their smallness, their small world and onto a bigger. So ethics would be hinged, you know, you're hanging your hat on a human problem that you haven't even begun to solve or address at the level you need to. I mean, it's addressed, yeah, amongst all the people who are in that field or who are tangentially in that field or lawyers and engineers who suddenly have to, oh no, I have to deal with that now. I better, you know, tie my seatbelt and do it and just swallow it, you know. But no, that's not the attitude. Yeah, you've never solved it from the get-go. So now you're suddenly faced with this huge problem which has a magnitude beyond which you, you know, suddenly you open the door and this huge boulder which is bigger than five houses is facing you and you should have done the leveling way back you know, not, not when you open the door and the boulders in your face right that's what i have to say about it i'll tell you why to just think back within my lifetime general ethical principles now are completely different from what they were when i was a child things that were normal practice in the 1940s are completely unthinkable now mm-hmm. no racism sexism domestic violence Stuff like that, that attitudes have changed completely. That's within the space of, what, 60 years. Maybe this pandemic could be a way of speeding up that process of change. You know, I'm not as pessimistic as you are because standards change. The question is how you get them to change faster. So you'd like to put the civil back in civilization. Yeah. Thank you for that. Bill, I mean, having been the voice for tens of thousands of engineers, all of us have an ethical requirement to protect the health and safety of the public. Do we need a clause? I'll let you answer that question, but there's another one in there, a side question. Do we need to have that ethical, that number one ethical statement be expanded to not only have an ethical obligation to the health and safety of the public, but to our fellow professionals? Members of the public, too. And I have to start with Roland's point that ethics is relative and it shifts over time. So it's a little bit hard to answer this question in terms of ethics. But I would say that, to me, one issue about ethics is to what extent can you be ethical and focus on your self-interest instead of somebody else's? And I think a lot of this has to do with how someone views their self-interest. And if you aren't persuaded that there's really a lot of, of risk, for example, in the pandemic, then maybe you don't want to spend money money on protecting yourself against it. And I think that's something that needs to be overcome. I would appeal more to a criterion of reasonableness and the fact that I I think that what people think is in their self-interest is really misguided. They don't understand the actual costs of decisions that we make to save money or to save energy. And we, we have this huge indoor environmental quality impact on health and productivity and well-being that's been ignored for a long time. And I, I think we're moving in the direction of recognizing it. So I'm somewhat optimistic that uh, we won't go back to the, the old normal. But I've seen before that you don't have to be very far downstream from something like this to revert to the old ways of thinking about what you want to do. And and in a much smaller way, the CBR terrorism incidents back 
20 years ago generated the same kind of interest in making buildings safer. And then it all went away because we got removed from those events and stopped thinking that we were really at risk. And of course, the recommendations were just about the same as what we're talking about now to make buildings safer. So I can't help thinking that we missed an opportunity 20 years ago to do some things to buildings for a different reason that would have made us better off today had we done them. And that's my biggest concern is that we maintain the sense of uh, urgency and a need to, to do something differently as we go forward past the COVID-19. To that point, Bill, I remember when the terrorism issue was there and we were talking about moving air, having units all to the roof for safety and blah, 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 and then it went away, right? So is this going to be market-led or is it going to be government push, for want of a better word, right? Is it going to be legislated for, do you think, or would it be market Oh, well, I think regulation would help. And I guess I forgot to say, and it, it's quite true that I've observed many professionals and owners doing their best to prove that these pandemic HVAC modification measures aren't really necessary or they don't help. They're trying to change things as little as possible. And that's a legitimate point of view. But I, I think we have to balance it with the other things that we know. Regulation would help. There's been at least three conferences in my career where I can recall where the health scientists came together with building scientists. One of them resulted in a great report by the U.S. Surgeon General. And I believe that individual at the time was a past ASHRAE president, but he made the comment that physicians are not taught building sciences and these sciences that are related to this environment of those buildings. And likewise, engineers and architects and interior designers are not taught anything about health sciences. That was a, a quote that I've used many, many times in presentations. And then following that conference, there were two other ones where the two sciences came together. And Bill, I don't know if you were in Vancouver or Shelley, if you were in Vancouver when uh, ASHRAE had an IAQ conference and there were several physicians that were actually in the audience. I don't know if they were presenting but they were certainly there observing and had made commentary. And it was great to see them in the space with the engineers. Maybe it's time that, Bill, you have influence. Shelly, you have influence, as does everybody else here on the call. Maybe it's time for another conference. We bring together these fields. What do you think? Well, I agree. Of course, that was why ASHRAE formed its Environmental Health Committee in, in 1986. That was my father's watch, by the way. And the, the sole purpose was to have healthcare professionals inform HVAC professionals about matters related to health. I think what we've learned during the pandemic is that the, the medical profession needs to have a building science committee so that they can tell them things about building that relate to health it goes both ways. I think right now, both areas would be really open to that dialogue given the results of the last 14 months or so. Last question before we wind this up, and Bill, this will be for you to first answer. What changes to building codes and engineering practice should we see going forward? Obviously, I think there should be changes to standards. We have for all but healthcare buildings, ventilation or indoor air quality standards that don't address health. You could go to the bottom of the table there with ventilation rates and says doesn't address microorganisms. So clearly we, we need to do something in that area. And I think that not just infectious disease control, but just health and 
productivity generally should be emphasized in those standards going forward. So I'd like to see resilience, which would include infectious diseases and also things like wildfires be reflected in those standards because we don't design for it now. We do in some areas, earthquake design or other things. You look at other disciplines within engineering, we do it, but we don't do it with respect to air quality and also just raising the bar. And I think that can be done together. Other things we've learned about standards, we think we have standards for filter rating that tell us what they do for different particle sizes. And I think we've learned a lot about what a standard 52.2 doesn't tell us about filters with the MERV rating. Obviously, for all of the air cleaners that are being promoted as other ways to deal with air quality problems, we don't have standards for those. We need them. And unfortunately, because that industry has been so resistant to having standards, we also don't even have the research that it takes to write the standards. So that's a big project. Risk assessment as an element in standards. This was another comment I thought needed to be made was that we've been living for a long time in an environment in which we really don't have to think about the risk assessment that was done that tells us how much ventilation we need or what the indoor exposure should be. Someone conveniently did that for us. We say, oh, I can only have 70 parts per billion of ozone and be safe. Well, that means somebody decided how many people could have health effects because of that. And now suddenly we're telling people, use your risk calculator to figure out how many clean air changes you need to be safe during the pandemic. I think that's going to have to be raised in in our consciousness when we write standards. And the final thing would be uh, energy standards that don't just try to beat down energy use any way they can, but that are coordinated with what we're trying to do with indoor environmental quality. That's my agenda for standards. Thanks, Bill. Shelly, I know you're chomping at the bit because this is right in your camp, but I want to get Roland just to put his thoughts on this, and then I'm going to turn it over to you, Shelly, and then Hemo, I'll get you to close up that last question. So, Roland? I absolutely agree with what Bill just said. Let's bring this together. Stop seeing building standards having separate dimensions. Bring them all together. It's a common problem. We've got to rethink it completely. And that's going to take a while, but it's also going to take a lot of input from, as you say, other disciplines. Rethinking the risk assessment is going to be a very important part of that. You know, I have to think that to the previous question, the previous dialogue about bringing together again the health sciences and the building sciences, that one of the forums should be how can our collective sciences influence building code committees? Because right there, that creates a tension between the political systems and what we're actually talking about in terms of minimum requirements. And we've said right from the beginning that should the authorities in charge of minimum standards, in fact, be the authority in the presence of a pandemic? And of course, the answer is no. They haven't demonstrated the ability to see beyond minimum requirements, right? Even the WHO early on stated in private dialogues, which you can go back and you can actually do screenshots of that, where they would say that what our statements are based on everybody being able to provide some level of practice. And then behind the scenes as, but if you can do better than that, you should. <laughs> that's I, that's I, not... I, the, I, yeah, I go ahead. It's about economists, but let me just throw in, if you want an economic dimension to it, the people who are involved in the insurance sector, they actually do understand risk assessment. And there are some seriously intelligent people involved in insurance, particularly reinsurance in my experience. Yeah. That's a great perspective, actually, because they have power as well when they decide to move... The Edifice Complex will continue in just a moment. Adam, it's time to thank some people who are on our side. Blue Rhythm Commissioning Software. Blue Rhythm is the commissioning software I've been looking for. Most projects I consult on suffer from poor information and document management. Frankly, it's just chaos out there. Blue Rhythm removes this chaos. 
It is a secure, always available cloud solution designed to work on any computer, tablet, or smartphone. Their Android and iOS apps allow seamless transition between online and offline work. But what I like most about Blue Rhythm is their painless and fast onboarding process. Their team will bring all your existing forms and checklists into Blue Rhythm for you, or you can use or adapt their pre-built, pre-functional and functional performance test sheet templates. But it's more than that. It enables collaboration, automation, and easy planning and project management for all your projects. Blue Rhythm provides amazing support from a team that really understands your industry. To find out more, go to bluerhythm.com or call country code plus one, six one two, four six zero, eight three zero five. Also, you can hear from Blue Rhythm President Andy Martin on episode 26 of the Edifice Complex podcast. Robert, Robert, we there yet? I'm bored. <laughs> and I'm, and it's hard to believe, but the future has finally arrived in Canada. How's that then? Well, smart remote building and equipment management is now available from Sensor Suite. Go on. Sensor Suite, yep. They're an innovator of smart building technology. We like them. They can monitor, control, and optimize anything in your building, saving you time and energy. You mean Sensor Suite are moving Canadian buildings into the 21st century? Yeah, I know. Another hard thing to believe, but they're doing it and they're saving owners money with efficiency gains. Okay, I'm in. How do I find out more? Got to go to sensorsuite.com or call 1 855 773 6767. And also check out the July 2020 episode of the NFS Complex podcast and listen to Sensor Suite CEO Glenn Spry. And now back to the show. Shelly. Yeah, you've got so much to contribute here in terms of filtration systems and codes and all that type. It's right in your camp there. What are your comments on where we need to go with engineering practice and building codes? And talk about a little about build because I know you've done a lot of research work with different types of air filtration equipment. And of course, it seems to me it was a, two days ago that one of the manufacturers in the United States has been hauled or will be hauled in front of a court for making false claims. So what's your comments on this going forward, building codes and engineering practice? Yeah, I mean, I really agree with everything that's already been said. So I want to add two more topics to the table, which is, I'm going to stress again, we have got to address this exhaust hood over the stove while cooking in every building that needs to be addressed. It's needed to be addressed for my whole career. Finally, people are realizing, oh, natural gas stoves are unhealthy. And it's not just the cooking. (laughs) It's the combustion of the natural gas. So that leads me to my next point, which is to make sure that we educate consumers, builders, so that we demand for homes that are natural gas free. And I think that there's a lot of pushback, obviously, from the industry who are now passing legislation to say it's not legal to ban natural gas hookups and all of this. But I think in the end, we need to look at this. I mean, some pilot work that I've just completed shows the indoor air quality in an electrified home compared to a natural gas home is much better. And that's for your health. And so I think this problem really needs to be looked at from climate change and from health perspective. And so I want to throw that out there along with everything else. Um, Yeah, we have a big problem with scientifically unproven air cleaning technology that seems to be able to be sold by the millions to unsuspecting customers. And I think that's a huge problem. 
the only way I know how to rectify it as a scientist is to actually do research, which is what I'm hoping to contribute to the question. Yeah, I think one of the things that's nice about in the U.S., it's the Federal Trade Commission, right, that does the that takes these people to task, these manufacturers. In Canada, Adam, we could probably take straw bales, put them together, and put a like a fan behind it and call that a filter. And we have no... no <laughs> There is no bite. You know, there's no penalty for people doing bad things in Canada like there is in the U.S. So I commend at least that part of your political systems and your legal systems to take these manufacturers to task. We need that across the board for sure. We are running towards the end. Hema, this is a new area for you, building codes. But you, like all things that you jump into, you jump in with everything, (laughs) mind, body, and soul. Going forward, what kind of words do you have for the practitioners and those in the writing building codes and engineering? Knowing you, I've been indoctrinated into the uh, (laughs) the whole, had a quick learning curve there. But I think, you know, with all the information that's out there, but... Shelly Miller was saying at the end about education, I will not be understating that fact. You know, education of all the people involved in the buyers also, like public education is severely lacking. And that's, I think, part of the bigger problem in everything is that if the public had kind of a better understanding, they can make the incorrect conclusion at the end, but let's give them the tools to understand. Having lived over here for my whole life, I think that there isn't a proper educational platform for people who want to, they can go seek it out. Like, you know, as you mentioned, you know, your course or other available courses that there are in the the public domain, you know, from a level zero point of view, you don't have to be an expert, but I think that's not widely available if you don't go and search for it. I think in general, as I always said, like public education in terms of just having that thinking ability, knowing where to get it, just in general, because then the, the building code will hinge on all the people, the you know decision makers and the politicians are not, it's not a job that you have to have political science or any kind of an economics degree or any economics knowledge or knowledge of trade. Any kind of a higher level knowledge is not a requirement for being a politician. And that's where the problem hinges because those are the decision makers. But if you have a public education system where a politician, just like I can't go and design an airplane unless, you know, I've got the background. I can't just say, okay, here, this is going to fly. I can't do that. And that there are a lot of laws against me being able to do that. So just like that, there should, why hasn't the, you know, the system come up with a a level of development of, you know, you can only be a leader and making a life-changing decision of life and death, literally, unless you have this background, this credential, this knowledge base, somehow just prove to us you've got that, not just people electing movie stars just because they, they want to hear them speak. So you can lead our country now because you look good. So these are the kinds of things that would be eliminated if we educated the public better. And your leader might make your life and death decision tomorrow. So you better start electing people who you would be able to put your life in their hands and be happy and sleep at night. I think that's where the problem lies. And if you're talking about building codes, I think it's all hinging on just the stakeholders being educated including people who make decisions in cities, for example, you know, you're talking about 
houses and building of houses, not just buildings where a lot of people gather, individual home building codes. We can talk about that for hours, but I think that's also a decision-making process that a lot of people will undercut because they can get away. What are you getting away from? A person's life or safety? If that was built in down here in the brain, they wouldn't be able to say, oh, this is good enough because good enough, what does that really imply for health and safety? That's a really good way of saying what we want are better market-led influence, right? So if you have an educated populace who understand, like, for instance, natural gas is an issue, you know, this is an issue, that is an issue, then they stop buying it. And the greatest untapped power in the world is consumer disobedience. Just ask BlackBerry how that worked out for them all. Consumer disobedience is the superpower that no one mobilizes. I agree with the importance of education there, but I think the standards process, I wish education would solve it. I sometimes think of the consensus standards process as having a Ouija board and everyone puts their (laughs) hands on it and and the standard moves to the the consensus of everyone's personal agendas. And and that's that's what we wind up with. I'm I'm fed up with you, Bill. I had a brief involvement with ISO processes and I thought never again for exactly that reason. What I think is most important, it comes very much what him was just saying. You can't expect everybody to know in detail about everything. You always got to take advice from people who are specialists and you're going to get contradictory advice. But I think the key thing is actually developing critical faculties. And that's where I think the education system has gone badly wrong. Particularly, I have to say, in the US, you know, even in Canada, when I'm teaching a master's class with American students in it, you can spot them because they're the ones who don't know any critical faculties. And that's why these wild things like QAnon develop. People think if they read something, it must be true. <laughs> I agree with that. The critical thinking is what, when I say education, that's absolutely clear. Yeah. We were a little bit over here, and I want to respect everybody's time and your contribution today's dialogue. It's been incredibly valuable, and we can't really wait to get it out there. If we can, we'll get it out faster, but there's obviously some things that we have to do to, to prepare it for publication. But I do want to thank each and every one of you. Clearly, we could keep this conversation going for hours. Um, I wish you all well and luck in your field. Stay safe and healthy and keep communicating what you have been doing because obviously we were making change, not at the rate that we'd like to see. And hopefully we'll get a chance to meet in person in the future. Adam, I'm going to let you have the last words here as the Yoda of all. Just before I do that, just thank you everyone for participating. The brain power here is awesome. I know we're going to try and find a way to help out listeners understand the amount of brain power sitting on this call, excluding me. I'm just talking about you guys, right? So my takeaway from this is this, a conspiracy of comfort has been broken. We were all super comfortable before this pandemic, right? Everyone was in their little lane doing their stuff. And all of a sudden, this thing comes out of left field and just disrupts everything. So we're going through it. We're coming out of it. The opportunity here is to be better than we were before, right? So how do you do that? You get people together like the people on this call who have some influence and power, and we just try and change it. So my request would be particularly to Bill and Shelley, who are in positions of of great influence in the States. Let's try and get some of these changes going. Let's try and get conference together or try and make this happen somehow. I don't think I can contribute to that, but you guys certainly can. So I'm a big fan of change for the better. I hate it when things happen and you slip just back into the old comfortable ways because then there's no growth in that, right? There's no change. There's no betterment. So that's for me. That's what I'd love to see. But again, thank you so much for coming on. Really, really learned a lot. Really appreciate it. I didn't even realize that natural gas was bad for me. And I've been in property development for 40 years, right? (laughs) 
I've just made a mental note to remind my wife and my mother-in-law to put the exhaust hood on every time we start cooking. There you go, Shelly, one person at a time. Yeah, change, man. That's influence. That's changed my household physical already. Awesome. Well, thank you very much, everybody. Yeah, thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. That was fun. I appreciate it. I love meeting everyone. So, Adam, you know, as we talked about before we had our guests on, this was going to be one of those episodes that carried a lot of responsibility because the conclusions or the information that was going to be communicated in this episode had some heavy consequences. We What we wanted is we wanted our guests to leave the audience asking some really tough questions. That was the first thing. And then the second thing was, is that getting people to act to step forward and contribute to the necessary changes so that the next time we're faced with such a global problem that, as you know, Bill's words, that our buildings are resilient, that we have the right indoor environmental quality systems. And as Shelley pointed out, that the things that we have in our buildings don't kill us, you know, that they actually enable us to be in a healthy environment and by connection contribute to our own state of health. Right. And that when you talk about with HEMA and I love talking with all of them and HEMA has come to us from outside of the sort of the property development, but her observations within her own knowledge apply in any field of study that understanding disciplinary studies is really important and that when we have a problem multifaceted, you need multi-skills at the table. And of course, it's a really good, important point to make. And Roland always brings from outside, because he's he's the guy on the mountain, right? He's, yeah, the, guy he's like the guy who just like picks it up and puts it right in your head. So you can't <laughs> <ignore> <laughs> So the comments that he made are very true in terms of social systems and economic systems, political systems, engineering systems, the ethics. He has a really good grasp of that. And what I always always liked about Roland is if you go back into his history in terms of the field of engineering, and he's contributed a lot. I mean, when you get to have as much knowledge as he does, he's got such a broad scope. And I think that was the power of the panel discussion. And that was interesting watching interaction because one of my worries was there were Big people, big in their field there. And there might be a little bit of like tension between them. No, no, I'm right. No, I'm right. But again, it was great to see the work together, the respect of each other's opinions. But I loved a couple of things. One of the things I already picked up was what Bill said. It's okay to be the loyal opposition. Just because you don't agree with someone doesn't mean they're your enemy. They might be pointing something out that you've missed which is his whole point about the, you know, the transmission through aerosol. That was great. Loyal opposition, there's nothing wrong with that. Democracies are based, certainly parliamentary democracies, are based on that whole principle, right? Completely missed in our... Because if you get into an ego match, you move from loyal opposition to being like, who's got the biggest mouth almost, right? That's a line you never want to cross. So I love that. And I love the way Hema sort of brought in what I call butterfly effect, you know, the health of someone in India can directly affect you in Canada, the UK, America, right? Yeah. You're not an island anymore. The world is so global and interconnected. Pandemic. What did Churchill say? A truth moves around the world before you can put your pants on. Well, nowadays, yeah. a pandemic can move around the world before you can put your pants on, right? That interconnectedness is missed a lot because when you're in something like this and you're in, your struggle is your struggle and your family's struggle, you lose sight of the interconnectedness of it, right? Yeah. I was speaking to some friends in the UK yesterday and they were all happy about coming out of it and they're a little bit ahead with the vaccines. And all of a sudden, this variant from India's arrived and there's a big Indian population there and boom, just out of left field. It's amazing. 
You know, one of the things about having the quality of the thought process that other these people have brought to the table is that every one of them made points that we could actually turn into a discussion all in of itself. You know, yes. every one of them had something to say. I think it's really important that our audience understand that these individuals, the gift of their time today should motivate them to explore what they've brought to the table in the last 12 to 14 months of this pandemic has evolved. Shelly has been very vocal and has taken a lot of heat, as has Bill. Hema has brought to the table a lot of understanding of how airflow is so unpredictable in environments that, you know, we can't use laboratory models as a means to study that. And then when you look at, you know, Roland again and his observations in the relationship of all of these fields, every one of them has something for somebody to dive deeper to understand how big the problem is. But it also demonstrated how useful it is to bring all these different minds together to discuss these subject matters. And you can have four people in a room and come up with some really good guidance on how we should handle the future going forward. And a conference, I think, would be really useful. Again, I think it's time. And maybe we'll see Bill and Shelley pull that together. Maybe. I don't know. You know? I do think I'll take many notes. Now, why not fill out two pages? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That always happens. You know, everybody that's listening, we started out with, you know, pages, notes and whatnot. Well, I've switched over to books. You record the information and yeah. it's, you know, it's huge. Anyways, great interview, Adam. Yeah. My brain yeah, is just yeah, ticking yeah. over at the moment. I've got my, my, the whole hamster wheel in my brain is going around like crazy. Anyway, yeah. man, that was great. I'll All see right. you in the next one. All right, take care. Bye now. Yeah, bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Edifice Complex podcast with Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean. To access show notes for this episode, visit edificecomplexpodcast.com. Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. See you next time.